Hello, I'm Carson, and I'm going to be talking about safety in the science classroom. You always want to be safe in a classroom, especially science. And here are some reasons why. Always follow directions in a lab. If you're not following directions in a lab, and you're doing, and you're in the middle of an, an experiment, you could mess up, and something could happen that's not expected. Number two, listen to your teacher. Do whatever the teacher says because, well, during an experiment, because if you accidentally mix something chemical-wise that you're not supposed to, it could be very dangerous, and you have the risk of being in danger. Next one, respect those around you. If someone has their hands full, like their books, and they're maybe putting a beaker away, a glass beaker, help them out. Offer to take something back for them so they're not in the risk of dropping their belongings or their glass beaker. Next one. You should never drink or eat during a lab because if you're working with chemicals, the chemicals could get in your food, and when you go to eat that food, it won't turn out very well. And the next one, if you have been injured, the first thing you need to do is tell your teacher. If you have an open wound and you're working with chemicals, the chemicals could get in that open wound and you can get a bad infection. Next one, keep your area clean to prevent accidents. If you spill something on the ground, maybe it's water or something that you're working with, go straight to your teacher and have someone clean it up. Because if that water stays on the floor and someone's carrying their belongings or like the other one, glass beaker, they could drop it and they could shatter the glass beaker and get all their books and belongings wet. Next one, lab equipment should be clean before and after you use it. Take care of your stuff. Just like at home, when you're, after you're done eating, you wanna put your dishes in the dishwasher or clean them off. Just like in the science lab, when you're done using a graduated cylinder or maybe a beaker or a microscope, take care of it, put it, put it, put, put it back where it was found or clean it off, depending on what you're using. Then the last one is tie back your, your long hair or baggy clothes during a lab. If you were working with fire, you could, well, specifically a Bunsen burner, you could get caught on fire because the flames could catch on fire because of your baggy clothes or long hair hanging down. So those are some of the things that that are important in lab safety. I hope you enjoyed, thanks. Hey guys, I'm Carson and this is my second podcast and I'll be explaining some of the tools we use in everyday labs and experience. So the first one is a graduated cylinder. It is tall and is a narrow container that has markings so that it can be used to measure the volume of liquids. It is measured in milliliters. Next one is, which you're probably most familiar with, a ruler. 
a straight device used to measure length. Our next one is a beaker. It is a wide cylinder-shaped vessel used to hold liquids. This is very much like a graduated cylinder, but it's used to hold liquids, and a graduated cylinder is used to measure liquids in volume. A spring scale. Used to measure weight or the pull of gravity on objects. Say if you're at a store and you're buying a food item, you would want to measure the weight or weigh it, and you're using a spring scale. And that spring scale will dictate the price of that food object. The next one, which you're probably also familiar with, is a stopwatch. It's a device used to measure time. And our next one is a triple beam balance. It is a device used to find the mass of objects. Now this is like the spring scale, but it's used to find the mass and not the pull of gravity or the weight. Our next one is a flask. It is round and is used to hold heat, hot liquids, hot or cold liquids sometimes chemicals. And our last one is a microscope, which you are probably very familiar with since we just got finished with our with our topic of microscopes. And it is an instrument that mag magnifies very tiny things in order to make them appear larger. Alright, thank you. I hope you enjoyed. Bye. Hey guys, I'm Carson, and this will be my third podcast, and I will be explaining the metric units. Our, we have four metric units, and they are mass, volume, length, and weight. I'll start off with mass. Mass, the amount of matter in a substance. The tool that can be used to find mass is a triple beam balance, an electronic balance, and a pan, pan balance. There are many more, but those are just a few. The units of that of mass are grams and kilograms. And our next one is volume. The measure of the amount of space a three-dimensional object occupies. Now, this is a this is also a math term. So we can relate in that way too. The units are milliliters, liters, cubics, and cubic centimeters. A tool that can be used to find volume is a graduated cylinder and rulers for solid solid figures. And our next one would be length. Length is pretty much how long something is. And the units would be centimeters and meters in the metric units. And a tool that can be used to measure length could be a ruler, meter stick, or even a tape measure. Our last one is weight, how heavy something is, the pull of gravity on an object. Units is a newton. And a tool could be a spring scale. All right, those are all of the metric units. Thank you. Bye. Hey guys, it's Carson, and this is my fourth podcast, and I will be explaining the scientific method. So the first one is state the problem. 
state the problem or ask a question you have. An example, what do you want to know? A second one is gather information. Information may come from previous experiences or research. So if you've done a lab like this in the past, you can relate to it now. You should always ask others for advice. Next one is form a hypothesis. Make an educated guess. You should always use if, then, and because when you're explaining it. Next one is test the hypothesis. If you want to prove your theory, you can test your hypothesis. Design your experiment. Perform the experiment care carefully. And our next one is collect and analyze data. You always want data to prove your, your theory in a lab. Results can be reported in many different ways. See if your data fits the hypothesis. And finally, you draw your conclusion. Write a statement that compares the hypothesis to the data. What, question, what questions do you have now? All right, thanks. Hope you enjoyed. Bye. Hey guys, I'm Carson. This is my fifth podcast, and I will be explaining the properties of minerals. Properties of minerals are cleavage, streak, fracture, hardness, color, and luster. These are all used to define, to identify the mineral that you're working with. First three are hardness, color, and luster. Hardness is the measure of how easily a mineral can be scratched, so how hard the mineral is. And the next one is the color. The color of the mineral is the first thing most people notice, but it can also be the least useful in identifying a mineral. Most minerals occur in more than one color. For example, quartz. There's rose quartz, and then there's clear quartz. The uh, color can't, well, can identify them, but they're two different minerals. Two different types of minerals. And the next one is luster. It is the way the surface of a mineral reflects light. And our next three are cleavage, streak, and fracture. Cleavage is the property of some minerals in which the mineral breaks apart along a flat surface. It is very much like fracture, but cleavage breaks in flat layers. And the next one is streak. It's a colored mark some minerals leave behind on a rough surface. And our next one, fracture, which is a lot like cleavage, is the property of some mineral in which when hit, they will break apart in chunks, jagged pieces of long splinters. So, in fracture, the pieces break apart in chunks, and in cleavage, they break apart in layers. So those are the six properties of minerals. I hope you enjoyed. Thanks. Bye. Hey guys, I'm Carson, and I am back with my sixth podcast, and I will be explaining the three types of rocks. They are sedimentary rock, igneous rock, and metamorphic rock. So starting off with sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rock is a type of rock that is made of sediment that has been deposited, compact, compacted, and cemented. 
Examples are sandstone, limestone, shale, and conglomerate. Our next one is igneous rock. It is a type of rock formed when molten rock within earth cools and hardens. Examples could be granite, basalt, obsidian, and pumice. And our last one is metamorphic rock. There are two types of metamorphic rock, and they are foliated metamorphic rock and non-foliated metamorphic rock. Foliated me metamorphic rock is when the rock the rock grains are arranged in parallel layers or bands. Non-foliated metamorphic rock is when the grains are arranged randomly. Some examples could be schist, gneiss, and slate and marble. So those are the three types of rocks. I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Hey guys, I'm Carson, and uh, this is my seventh podcast, and I will be explaining soil layers. There are five layers of soil, and they are O-horizon, topsoil, subsoil, parent material, parent material, and bedrock. So the O-horizon is at the very top. It contains uh, grass and plants. And the next layer is the top circle. It, it has all the roots of the plants um, on the O-horizon. And the subsoil is right below the top soil. And it contains very rich soil because it is full of nutrients. And the next one is the parent material. Now this is soil mixed with rocks. There are a bunch of rocks mixed in with the soil in the paramaterial layer. And then finally, bedrock. Bedrock is a layer of very hard rock right below at the bottom of the soil layers. I hope you enjoyed. And this, once again, this is my seventh podcast. Thanks. Hey guys, I'm Carson. This is my, my eighth podcast and I will be explaining the cell theory. Cell theory is one of the foundations of biology. There are six major factors in the cell theory and they are the cell is the basic basic building block of all living things. Number two, all organisms are made up of one or more cells. Number three, similar cells from similar species are essentially the same in chemical composition. And number four, all cells come from the division of pre-existing cells. So if a cell or a living organism breaks down, it may, well, the cells from that living organism can create more, uh, more cells. And Number five, cells containing genetic material that is passed down to daughter cells during the cell division. And lastly, number six, energy flow. It is called metabolism, occurs within the cells. And those are the six factors in the cell theory. I hope you enjoy. 
Hey guys, I'm Carson, and this is my ninth podcast, and I will be explaining animal cells versus plant cells. So first, animal cells, they are round in shape because they do not have a cell wall to support them. And in this case, plant cells have a cell wall to support them, which gives them their rectangular slash square um, shape. And what do identify an animal cell is by their round shape and because an animal cell has two large vacuoles and a plant cell has one very, very large vacuole. And both of these cells have their nuclei, which is the, the control center of the cell. And I hope you enjoyed my podcast. Hey guys, I'm Carson, and this is my 10th podcast. It's my last podcast. And I will be explaining all the parts of a compound microscope. So starting off with the eyepiece. That is the part that we look through when we're examining something through the microscope. And next is the objective lenses. Those are the lenses that magnify the object. You should always, with a compound microscope, you should always start with 4x, then 10x, and then 40x. And the next part of the microscope is the stage. You put your specimen or object on the stage, and the, your objective lenses will magnify that object on the stage. And the next um, part of the microscope is the diaphragm. That is the part that reflects the light through the stage so you can see your object or specimen. And the next part of the microscope is the illuminator. That is the light that shines up through the diaphragm and into the stage. That is the part that that makes the light and generates the light for you to see. And your next part of your microscope is a fine adjustment knob. When you are on 40x or a high magnification, you should always use your fine focus knob. That makes, that shows more detail in your object. And your next part of your microscope is your coarse focus knob. When you are using 4, 4x, you should always use your coarse adjustment knob. Because if you're using 40x and you use your coarse adjustment knob, the objective lenses might get too close to your specimen and maybe break or scratch your your specimen or your object. And the next piece is the arm. When you are carrying a microscope, you should always hold it by the arm and the base. The base is on the bottom. You should always have one hand on the arm and one hand on the base. So that is the way, that's the most safe, that's the safest way you can 
hold your microscope. So this this was my last podcast. I hope you enjoyed, and I'll see you then.